Pushkin. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. There's this one moment where her blood father kneels down at her side when she's a tiny little girl and he's about to leave her with his uncle um, forever. And he says to her, know that you are loved. And one of the reasons why I wanted that in that film is because I think that that's something that my father wanted to instill in all of his kids. Because, you know, when the shit is hitting the fan and, and when the world is making you feel like you don't have any value and then what you have to offer doesn't have any value, that there's a kind of core resilience inside which has been built from the understanding that from being very small that you are loved, you have value. That was Ama Ashante. I'm Sam Fragoso and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. Mama Ashante was born in 1969 London to Ghanaian parents. Her father was an accountant. Her mother ran a deli. She was a child actress on the hit British television show Grange Hill. And then, soon after, while her friends went off to college, she began to write. She may have not known it at the time, but her ability to write would eventually land her jobs writing scripts and then, ultimately, into directing. I'll say, she seems like the type of person who had a good idea of her talent early on. She made her directorial debut in 2004 with a film called A Way of Life. She then came back years later for a film called Belle, which I think to date is her most popular picture. Then in 2016, A United Kingdom, 
Which brings us to this past weekend, where her latest film, Where Hands Touch, is out in theaters around the country. It tells the real-life story of two teenagers, one black, one white, as they survive in Nazi Germany, all the while falling in love. Here's a bit from the trailer. We are looking for the girl. She is your child. You want to find her? Why are we going to Berlin? To be invisible. It wasn't that I had not known I was different. I have papers for you. Wherever you go, they will protect you. As I reached 16, I realized Hitler had a plan for us. We have a new girl joining us today. Her name is Lena Schlegel. It's a good German name, but your face is so un-German. Schlegel is my mother's name. Shouldn't you be going with them? Amma's films have a tendency to deal with history, often of the unpleasant kind. They deal with segregation, interracial love, femininity. Essentially, her work is grounded in the past, perhaps to illuminate how far we've yet to come. When we sat down, Amma and I went over her young days as a child actress in the UK, starting out writing scripts on spec, but then selling them very quickly, her trials and tribulations of directing in a big system that does not have many people that look like her, and then, ultimately, how she hopes to continue to grow as an artist and director, making movies that still matter to her. So, finally, here is Ama Ashante. So, movie comes out tomorrow. Mm-hmm. How are you feeling leading up to that? I know it's like a, it's different and probably scary every time. Hmm. I'm feeling scared, very, <laughs> very scared, not even scared. Um, and I'm, I have a lot of anticipation. This movie has been a long time in the creating for me. So, you know, finally it's going to get out there and, and meet its audience. And that's... That's always a bit terrifying, letting your baby out there, but but I'm excited too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to start with um, the specific researching process that you did. I know there was a lot of work mm-hmm. going into it. Where does the story begin for you? Um, it begins actually after my very first film about 12 years ago. Um, that movie called A Way of Life, which didn't get a US release. It was released in the UK and um, parts of Europe, was set in Wales. And um, I'm a Brit, born and bred. Um, I discovered that Wales had some of the oldest black communities in Europe. And I didn't know that. And I found it really strange that I didn't, I did, I don't really know about the history of people of colour, um, not just in the UK, but across Europe, kind of imagine someone, you know, a person of colour from a particular state, not knowing 
the history of people of color from other states. It would kind of be really weird because... Um, so I, I realized I didn't know, and it made me feel weird. And I, I kind of realized that I knew more about African American history than the history of people like me who are maybe of African descent, but born and raised in Europe. And so after my first film, I still kind of had that adrenaline buzz thing going on and didn't know what to do with myself. So I sat down at the computer, started putting the relevant terms in to explore more of this. And I kept coming up with this term, the Rhineland Bastards. Rhineland Bastards, it just coming mm. up, kept coming up. I had a look on Wiki and it kind of described um, a generation of um, Afro-German, so biracial children who were born of these um, white German mothers and African fathers who were from the French colonies in Africa but had fought during World War I. And after Germany lost that war, these French soldiers had been put into the Rhineland area of Germany as part of the occupation. They'd mixed with the local women and these children were born. Mm. And the key thing was that, you know, some of them were coming of age just about the time that Hitler was about to do his real worst. And I kind of thought, oh my goodness, if we know what was happening to Jewish people at the time, if there were these young not very many in numbers, I think about 25 to 30,000 half black children in Germany at the time, what must have happened to them? So as I started to look deeper into the research, I kind of, just the surface research, I realized that all these assumptions that I had were wrong. Mm. There was this really interesting existence for these children where they were not confronted with the mass murder machine that the Jews were confronted with and on and they lived kind of like on a on a individual basis in the sense that if they didn't meet the wrong SS officer on the wrong day they could get through the war right and survive in a way that a Jewish person could not that part in the film I think is one of the more interesting bits where it's like it's like a game of chance mm-hmm. you could totally be okay mm-hmm. if a certain situation didn't present itself. Mm-hmm. When you're mm-hmm. researching that, I don't know, is there a party that's like, how is this possible? How did this happen? In a way that is, but I, I got an answer pretty early on. And, oh, okay. And by the way, I'm really pleased that you noted like this sense of chance because I'm playing with chance all the way in the, through the movie. Yeah. Like, a, you know, I've, some people have sort of said, oh, some of it's, you know, it sort of falls into place really easily or coincidences happen. They're supposed to, you know, he runs his bike into her. That's how they have their first, they literally run into each other. Right. Um, you know, there's a big theme that falls around time and place, time and place the whole, the whole way through. And if fate doesn't catch you, you can survive. And if fate does catch you, you can die. And that's kind of how easy it or, or difficult it was for these children to walk or these young people to walk this tightrope. So, yeah, what, what I learned was that because they were so few in number and because they were relatively young, they didn't have the kind of power that Hitler determined was dangerous. Mm. So they weren't doctors, teachers, lawyers, scientists. They didn't have money in the economy. They had no influence whatsoever. So in fact, they were no threat to him whatsoever. He didn't see them as a threat, except that they could procreate. So he dealt with that by creating this secret section of the Gestapo and 
you know, taking them out of school very quietly, taking them off the street, you know, wherever he could, and then having them sterilized without anesthetic and then quietly put back in their homes. And there was also a reason for this as well, which was that their mothers were part of Germany, the Germany that he wanted to 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 see, you know, that Aryan white, you mm. know, world of Germany. So they could have had fathers who were in the Gestapo. They could have had brothers who were in the SS. He couldn't be seen to be attacking these mothers via their children. He had to be really careful of that because it couldn't kind of look like Hitler's going for everybody. Right. That would have been a problem for him. So that's why these children were afforded a certain level of, I don't know if protection is the right word. Shall we say grace? Mm, your word, not mine. I, I don't know. I don't know how, what, you know, listen, the point was that they could walk around openly to a certain extent and definitely didn't face the instant right. fate that a Jewish person would. Maybe Grace is right. You know, that a Jewish person would at that time if they openly walked around 1944 Berlin problem. It, mildly better treatment. Mildly. I think yeah. like Mi emphasis on the mildly. Yeah, mildly better. But survival was, you know, survival was something that they could you know, there was a real possibility for them and it wasn't really for Jewish people. Right. Yeah. Uh, you're talking about, you know, the characters literally running into each other, mm -hmm. but this bigger concept of mm -hmm. uh, time and place. And in the research leading up to this, I've been looking at your history and I, wa I wanted to start, not start, but go back to your time when you land this this role on Grange Hill, mm -hmm. because from what I've read, you were a fan of the show mm. before getting it, and I was thinking all children were in the all UK. right, all children yeah. were. So I was just I was like trying to put myself in the situation. If I was a kid watching a show that like all my friends watched, and then one day they're like, "Hey, do you want to be?" On this show, mm -hmm. that seems so surreal to me. So run me through what happens in that time. Well, um, so I'm I'm a kid. I'm about 10 years old and I'm living in a neighborhood that is predominantly white. And, you know, you have to remember this is actually a long time ago. And, you know, the part, <laughs> it's not that long it was ago. a long time ago. And the part of the um, London that I was living in, you know, it wasn't particularly mixed. It is today. Mm -hmm. And um, so I've got my best friend, Samantha, who goes to a tap dancing class every Tuesday. And I want to be just like her. So I go to the same tap dancing class and I'm not treated like her when I go there. I'm treated really differently because of my race. Right. And, and um, for context, your father is an accountant. My dad's an accountant. And your mother works at a deli. My mum, yeah. My mum had a, her own shop for 40 right. years. And you guys are from Ghana. Yes. Okay. Um, my parents were born in Ghana and they came over to the UK in the very early 60s. Um, and then I was born, you know, some dec a decade after they they came to the UK. Right. And so, um, so I was treated very, very differently. And my parents who were generally just busy trying to keep a roof over our heads and, hardworking. Um, you know, hardworking, um, and who kind of raised us to understand that we were in someone else's country and certain things would happen despite the fact that I was born there, but certain things would happen and you just had to be resilient and you kind of had to know that you had worth and value. And that was basically what they instilled us with. And the kind of day-to-day -day detail of that, they just didn't really have time to to deal with. Mm. But on this particular one occasion where I'm doing a school show, uh, well, well, a class show for this tap dancing class, my mum comes to see the show and I'm not in it. 
having dragged her from work to come and see it. And I'm walking home with her and she says, honey, why weren't you in it? Well, I came all the way. And I say, well, because I was only in the finale and the finale was a song called Blue Eyes. And they said, I didn't have blue eyes, so I couldn't be in it. Mm. And my this gets back to my father. He's very angry, but my dad was a very quiet, gentle man. So I didn't know that he was angry. And his response to it was to say, you know, my child is creative and she wants, she needs a creative outlet mm. and I'm not creative myself. I need to find a way to nurture that. And he found a stage school, which was full-time like drama school, but you learn formal subjects as well. So drama, dance, all of that, but you do the maths and English and literature as well. Right. So I was in um, stage school from the age of 10 years old and working in television was an everyday part of that world. The school also was an agency that supplied children to the British film and television industry. This is very official. Yeah, this is very, very official. So, <laughs> you know, I did my first ad at 10 years old and I was very, very used to my friends and compadres you know, having a morning off because they were shooting a commercial or having an afternoon off because they had a part in a drama. Right. That was all part of our world. It became very normal. So you'd be um, like, teacher, I can't go to math. I have to do an ad. Well, actually they would know because you, we would have an evening assembly or a kind of late afternoon assembly before you went home fr from school. And um, any child who was working the next day would get a small envelope. You'd be called out one by one ah. and you'd get a small envelope and it would have your call time and what the job was. And you probably would have been for an audition a few days before and your teacher would know as well so this is so civilized it was very civilized and you'd have a chaperone who would take you and uh if it was more than a day you would actually have tuition as well production would supply you with tuition i guess just like they do here in los angeles if kids are working it yeah. was was kind of the same so by the time i so you, you have to remember that you know a lot of my friends you know I went to school with Naomi Campbell. Um, I went to school with other people who are still in the industry today in the UK. And they were all modeling for Marks and Spencers, which is a store line in our, our country in the UK. And everybody was working. So when I get this little envelope that tells me I have to go for an audition, it's normal. There's nothing abnormal about it. But I am a little bit nervous, a bit like I am today, the day before the film goes out. <laughs> and I go for the audition and normally you'd go for about three or four, I understand, but evidently they were desperate. So I went for one <laughs> and I got the job. Um, and then there's an interim period before you actually start working. Oh. So, um, you know, because they're, they're booking you for the next series. So you, you start at the beginning of a series. Okay. So that kind of period, I wondered what, what it would be like because I knew all of you know, from the TV screen, all of the characters that were in the show and I knew them by face. And I thought, is that going to happen to me? Like, will people know who I am? Like, how will I get on the bus? And what will it be like, you know, in my local community where I live, which right. was quite far away from where my school was. You have all those thoughts, but you're counseled by um, your producers when you are about to start and they kind of give you the rundown of what life, how life will change. And mm. they, they got it right. It was how it changed. How did it change? Well, you do get recognized. You do get recognized and you're getting paid. So there's a difference there. You know, I was able to earn enough to pay my school fees so that mm. my parents didn't have to. That was a great big deal in my family. Right. Um, and um, you kind of have to learn to deal with a different kind of attention because, as I say, this was kind of the number one show for kids, for, you know, high school kids mm. in the UK at the time. I was thinking, what does that do to a teenage, you know, to a teenager 
to be put through that system and to be working in a very professional setting while still going to school? I mean, toggling back and forth, was that difficult at all? So school was an environment where everybody was doing what I did. So, you know, I I was amongst peers in that way, going home back to my local world where kids were not doing what I was doing. That was tougher. And, you know, there was some bullying involved. Um, You know, kids think you think you're better than them. Kids think you're richer than them. Kids think you have access to a life that they don't. And of course, there was some complexity around that because remember, I'm still living in an environment where I'm one of the few black kids. So now I'm like, I'm one of the few black kids, but I'm perceived as being privileged as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was that was a very confusing existence for me at that particular time. Yeah. Um, but you know, as kids do, as teenagers do, you just you find a way to to get through it. You, I mean, you have no choice. Right. You know, you wake up every day and you and you move through it. And at some point, you look back and you go, "That was hard." Right. That was tough. I think that it's the worst age. It is the worst age. People, no one knows who they are. Right. And that's why I think I'm slightly obsessed with that age group as well. I was about to say. Yeah. You seem, uh, I wasn't going to use the word obsessed. Mm, I'm obsessed. Oh, okay. (laughs) Well, you can use it. Yeah. Um, You go away to, I I believe, secretary school. Is that right? My mom, my mom thought my dad was crazy. (laughs) And, uh, you know, why on earth? You know, there were were barely any people of color on screen at that time. And then now he's gone and given his daughter wild ideas about a career in acting because she got a TV series for a few years. And she could see it all kind of crashing and burning. Mm -hmm. And um, all my peers uh, who were not acting, you know, had gone to college and university. And I hadn't. I had nothing to fall back on whatsoever. So she wanted that. So I go to secretarial college to learn to type. Yeah. How was that? I enjoyed it. I mean, you know, I was around. I mean, the the great thing about doing what I did, kind of being on TV and then going back into the normal world is it taught me what this industry is like. Like I never got famous and then had to stay that way my life is always one minute i have a film out the next minute you know i'm walking the dog and i'm writing for two years and nobody has a clue right you get to oscillate back and forth yeah you're back and forth and that's what that taught me and so i loved it because i was around ordinary kids who were doing the same thing learning to type to go and you know put that skill into whatever it was Mm. they were going to do next i had no idea Right. What it was going to be the platform for me to do next. It seemed like, though, at your core, you wanted to be a storyteller. Definitely. I I was wondering, what were you like at that age, in your early 20s, wanting to tell stories, but going to like the secretary school and and trying to figure out your path? I didn't, you know, the key, it was a weird thing the way it evolved in my body and in my brain and in my intellect, because first and foremost, I knew I was a bad actress. And how did you know that? Because I saw people around me who were really good Mm -hmm. and that really played into my wanting to tell stories. So I saw the power of, you know, turning a screenplay round into something that was on screen, having a conversation with an audience, my age group and the impact that it had on that audience. We had a great, incredible heroine storyline at the time. They took one of our really beloved characters who had been in the show since he was 10 and around about 16, they gave him a heroin problem. Very slowly built it up, very slowly. And he was incredible in depicting this existence. And um, 
So I watched his storyline evolve and others, you know, we, we dealt with suicide. We dealt with, you know, teen suicide. What was your character's abortion. arc? I was a very, very good girl who's, um, <laughs> who's, um, whose father or mother, I can't remember now. One parent had died and the other parent was still alive, okay. um, but had to work like hell to keep a roof over our heads. And I had a younger, two younger siblings, one who was at school with me and another who wasn't. And I was essentially like the sister parent to these. Caretaker. Yeah, I was the caretaker, but I was the kid who was trying to be a kid, but couldn't be a kid. Because, right. So, but somewhere along the line in acting on that show, you realized... Yeah, that that's this is not your thing. That's not my thing. But wow, the power of these stories! And we, you know, Anthony Mingella was um, a script editor on this series, and so I think I learned also this idea that you didn't just have to be one thing. Like you didn't you didn't strive to get to one place and just stay there. Right. You you you. I could be a Renaissance woman if I wanted to. And he was a script editor and then he was a writer and then he was a writer and a director and he was doing it in theatre, but then he started to make movies. And I just thought this was incredible. Right. But I didn't know I could tell stories. Why not do it all? Why not do it all? Except I didn't know how to do it all. So it was the typing. Secretarial College comes together when I'm trying to get my typing speed up and I'm tired of just like copy typing stuff out of the newspaper. And so I start typing up a story that I have in my mind, which is loosely based on my pretty dysfunctional functioning family. And um, that's a good way of describing a family. All families, right? I think dysfunctioning. Functioning. Yeah, there's a picture of my mother right behind you. And I was looking at it earlier and I was like, yeah, dysfunctioning, functioning. Yeah, that's I mean, about right. But that's all. I mean, if you're a functioning family, there's something really weird about you. I mean, I, I've have yeah. you gone to those dinners where they seem normal? But they're scary. They, it's like a David Lynch movie. Yeah, they're yeah. scary, and you and you know what lies beneath. <laughs> that's the that's the terrifying thing. Like at least at least when it's all surface. Yeah, you kind of right. You can feel safe, but when it's all like there underneath, it's scary. I want to go into a family and be like, "Yep, you are dysfunctional right yeah. away." Yeah, I want to know I'm in safe hands, and then I feel normal. Great, with them. You know, I feel welcome and normal. <laughs> I'm glad we're on the same page. Yeah, exactly. And I think most people feel like that. They get it. And so this this piece that um, I did became the first piece that was commissioned um, by Channel 4 in the UK. I got seven seven scripts in one go commissioned. It's pretty unheard of today. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the pay that goes with that, which meant I didn't have to go to work. Right. So you I, could leave that job. I could, I could leave the job that I was hoping to get. I was being fired from all my jobs anyway. And I could sit at a desk all day. You were being fired because you weren't good at them? Well, I was being fired because I was going for, uh, I was still going for auditions during the day. And I was trying to see out one little, one little period that I had as a presenter on children's TV. Like I had a contract that I had to see out, but Uh I knew once that contract was over, that was it for me for acting. So, um, so I'd have to make excuses why I couldn't be at work. My right. dad would call and say, there's an emergency at home and Emma has to leave. And then I'd run from one part of Soho in London to the other and go sit in my presenter's chair <laughs> and present kids TV. Eventually you'd run out of excuses though. Exactly. So I got fired. I mean, what happened was um, my boss saw me on ch- kids TV. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. She was like, oh, she's she's having a family emergency. Turns on the TV. And I'm there. So she fires me. That's really, I have to say, though, if you're going to get fired. That's a good way to be fired. That's a good reason a, to be fired. Kind of a great fired. reason to be fired. I agree. Though you're really caught in that lie then. Mm, I was really caught. Cool. What did it feel like to sell a script? Um, I think that happens. You start writing at 22, 23. You yeah, sell a script yeah. around mm-hmm. 26. 
Um, so I sell a script at 23. 23. Yeah. They make it into and a the, show at 26. At 26, another, another show gets made at wow. 26. I'm in development for three years. I go through that whole, I mean, some people call it development hell. For me, it was such a huge education and super freeing. And also, if you think about what I'm now saying about being, not being good at acting and one of the reasons why I wasn't good at acting is because I was too self-aware and how it made me feel. But the flip side of that was sitting down at a desk and writing where I just felt at home. I felt comfortable, felt like I was wrapped in a duvet all day, even though I wasn't. You know, it <laughs> felt it really felt like this was a space I was supposed to be in. And so um, selling the script definitely felt like a natural follow on from that. I think that I was naive and though I knew that writing and trying to have a career in writing and selling a script was hard, mm. I didn't know how hard because right. that first beat kind of just fell into my lap a bit. Was there a hard time in that period? I think the hardest time was when um, a new commissioning person came in, like a new network commissioner came in and wanted to start you know, with a clean house right. and came with a new broom. And so suddenly three, Wipe year, out three all years pre-existing of work, relationships just went completely. And I was kind of like, what do I do? Like, you know, I've spent all this time nurturing this relationship. Like, you know, this original person got the script. They got me. They were the person who kind of they wanted were spearheading seven. your work. Yeah. They were a champion for it. And now somebody else has come in and they want to find their own people to champion. That was pretty tough when you hit ground zero for the first time in that way and you go where am i now mm -hmm. that was probably the toughest time i've been there a thousand times since well so. right it's a good lesson because it's like at any moment it can change on the drop of a hat yeah yeah what do you think it is about you that you had the confidence to keep going when things got tough or even just working as a young creative person in your 20s it's not easy Oh my God. I don't know. I think it's, a, it's just, it's a combination of so many things. Is that a strange question? No, it's not. It's a really good question. And I think it's a really good question for all aspiring artists, all emerging artists out there across the, across the field. I think it's a really good question for women as well. I think, I think it's, it's a question that's important for all of us. I think that, um, I had wonderful parents and I really did have a wonderful dad. And there's this if anybody's seen my film from a couple of movies ago called Belle mm -hmm. uh, about biracial young woman being raised in 18th century England, there's this one moment where her blood father kneels down at her side when she's a tiny little girl and he's about to leave her with his uncle um, forever. And he says to her, know that you are loved. And one of the reasons why I wanted that in that film is because I think that that's something that my, my father wanted to instill in all of his kids I, I, and I realize now one of the reasons why he wanted us to know that is because when everything else is falling away, when everything else is just, can I say S-H-I-T is hitting the you, fan? You, you can curse as much as you, you want. Know, when the shit is hitting the fan and, and when the world is making you feel like you don't have any value and then what you have to offer doesn't have any value, that there's a kind of core resilience inside which has been built from the understanding that from being very small that you are loved you have value and and i wanted to take that and offer that to Belle's character um knowing that she was you know going to have to face the world one day as someone who was unusual apparently in her world 
and and be resilient know that whatever she was told she still had worth and i think that's what i think that's part of it i think naivety was is has been part of it mm. and i think a passion for what i do i never learned to do anything else well let's take a listen to this clip but that's why i'm still in the place of knowingly feeling the need to contextualize what someone like me means in the world because it's still an image that is um noticeable to a lot of uh, the american population uh, when it happens your films are, are often very much about biracial uh, f young women but also interracial love and, and identity mm -hmm, mm -hmm. at that age mm -hmm. how often are you thinking about your place in the society and not looking like the people around you is it every day is it every moment it's a, it look it's this weird thing where you don't know any different mm. i i don't know what it's like to look like the majority of people in my country and the country that i was born in so you are you you it's it's just a normal way of life to quote my first film to live with this duality um, to be bi, for me, it's bicultural. Right. So you are, you're, you're conscious and you're not conscious all at the same time. Mm. And, you know, there are times when, you know, something will jump out and spike at you and you'll go, whoa, you know, you'll just be going around your, about your day and maybe, and you're just you. Right. And then someone will do or say something and you go, whoa, I have a, my presence has offended this person so much. This is the chance encounter. Again. Right. And you just and you didn't see it coming. It might be someone behind the counter at a bank, it might be someone in a coffee shop. Again, the flip side of that is sometimes that will come at you. And someone's just had a bad day and it's nothing to do with you. Mm -hmm. And the difficulty is working out which it is. And it's also exhausting. It's exhausting trying to work out what this person's responses mean. And at the same time, you know, we also lived in a world in um, the UK, particularly in London, in inner city London, that was extremely multicultural, extremely multiracial. When my brother brought friends home, their parents came from Pakistan, from India, from China, from the Caribbean. Mm. You know, it was so normal to have, and, and white, you know, just Anglo-Saxon English. So it was very normal. It's also, you know, you're living that life, but you also have this super integrated life that you're living as well, where you are not isolated um, from the community, uh, the wider community that you're being raised in. So you're having to get used to this duality the whole time. It's something that feels normal in the moment because it's your day-to-day -day life. It's just your day. You don't know any different. Although I f it seems in looking at your body of work, you know, that your films have allowed you to reinterrogate yeah. these situations. Definitely. Definitely. And I think that, you know, I think that partly what that's been about has been um, growing up. Um, you know, a little bit naive, a little bit, you know, a little bit in my creative <laughs> bubble and um, experiencing things at different times where sometimes I could work out what it was about. And most of the time I couldn't. Mm. And now being able to through film and through the stories that I tell, as you say, interrogate what that was all about or express what I feel that was all about through my work. So as an example, 
we were a black family living in a predominantly white area. That made us different. But what made us just as different, if not more, was that we owned our own home in a space where um, a lot of it was social housing. So houses with gardens, um, not... not um, what we call in England council blocks, uh, which are, you know, tall, tall apartment blocks, but houses. And around about the time when I was living there, the Labour government at the time had become fed up and and angry at the idea of ghettos, you know, taking families and stacking them in these tall buildings, one of which very recently we had burned down in London mm. and kill a number of families and, you know, people that we feel a loss for in our country today and so they said you know we're going to buy up we're going to buy up houses in suburbs we're going to buy up houses um, that families should live in where the kids can have a garden to run around in and where we can create communities of people and break down these barriers between who can afford to buy a home and who has to have social housing so we had a mixture. We lived in an environment that, where there was a mixture, but we owned our home. So there was this class, it wasn't a class division, but for them it was a perceived class division. So, you know, then you get Belle where I'm exploring, what does it feel like when you're seen as a privileged person of color, mm. but actually you don't have equality? Because that's something that I experienced being perceived as at the time. So your family... Your family wanted you to uh, have a backup career. Yeah. Because you're talking about uh, class division and just your childhood growing yeah. up. Yeah, yeah. I was wondering when in your life did your parents say, okay, you are making it as a director. We support this uh, career path. My dad always did. Okay. My dad was always like, you know, go, go find the artist in you and I'm just proud of you and you know, I think I was making him proud. I mean, the great thing about my dad was like, you know, I could just utter a piece of Shakespeare and he felt proud. So <laughs> that kind of support is really? is really great. And my mum was just like, well, as long as you're happy and as long as you, you got food on the table, that's fine. But the minute you don't, that's why I needed you to have something to fall back on. So just thinking that like at, at 16, um, I'm already going with the TV series the, the kids TV series that I do, I'm, fl I'm flying over here to the States, um, to Washington to go to the White House because um, we've been invited by the Reagan White House. And my dad is already so proud of that. As far as he's concerned, that's like she's already on the right track. Right. By the time I, you know, he's he buys a satellite dish. He one of the first, you know, in our country because I'm presenting on cable TV and he needs that dish to watch me on cable TV. That is a really proud father. That's a proud father. And then by the time... I'm, you know, selling my scripts. He's really happy. And then I make my first film and I win a British Academy Award for that. So he's, and and yeah, sadly, that's the only movie he got to see me make. Mm. But he did see the accolades that I got for that. And he left believing that I was on the right path. And so, you know, I, he always supported that, that career. So I was lucky and I know that he is very untraditional in that sense when it comes to fathers like that came from his, you know, a similar background to him. Mm. Why do you think he was so supportive? I don't know. And I based Lord Mansfield in Bell on him. Right. Um, I, I based this, I created this character who was, um, had one foot firmly in tradition and the other foot firmly in stuck in being, you know, in progression. 
And that was my dad. He was traditional and pro progressive at the same time. And I think that created conflict in him. Um, I think tradition made him feel safe and progressiveness made him feel happy. Ah. And he couldn't, he couldn't let go of either. And so I think that um, he, he, he wanted me to, he wanted me to be happy more than he wanted to feel safe. Your films feel both traditional and progressive. Mm -hmm. Probably from my dad. Right. Yeah. And where is your mother's influence in this equation? It's a really good question. A really, really good question. I think from my mother comes courage. I think from my mother comes the resilience. I think my mother was a pioneer. You know, when she opened her shop in the 60s in London, there were barely any black people who owned their own shops. And um, the kind of product that she was selling was not was not the kind of product that black people who did have shops in Britain were selling. Mm. And so, um, and you know, she was a woman who was doing this as well, you know. Um, and so um, I, I saw from a very young age, you know, from the, as far back as I can remember, this progressive, um, not strong as in kind, you know, but um, resilient woman who had vulnerabilities, but faced them down and, and did it anyway. Yeah. You know, and I think that that's, that's that part of me. Is there a moment in your life, in your career, where I, I, I think, so from the get-go, your father was like, okay, she's doing this. Yeah. Your mother seems to be mostly there with you. Yeah. What about in yourself? Is there, is there a film where it clicked into place? I think it was my first film. The first one. I, I think my TV series was a training ground. Right. First film was Way of Life. First, uh, so first film was A Way of Life. And the first TV series is the one that has David Oyelowo in it, David Harewood in it, a number of other actors that are well known in the UK, probably a little bit lesser known here. And um, and from there I go on and I make my first film, A Way of Life, in two thousand and four. And I uh, was going to produce it and write it as I had my TV series. I'd never directed before. It's a financier that says to me stop looking for a director. You really are the person who needs to direct this. I say no. He says it again. I say no. This continues for about a week. And then eventually my agent, Sarah Stroud, who sadly passed away, says to me, you know, I will not let you say no. This is not you. This is not an option for you to say no. You have to go direct this film and see what it feels like. And when I did, Whatever that comfortability was when I started writing and, you know, sat down at my desk in a dark room and typed in fade in, um, whatever that feeling was, it was like tenfold when I got behind the camera. Right. It was such a clear, sensible, obvious choice for me that I couldn't believe that I had not understood obviously what I wanted to do is when I as in producing I wanted to hold on to my characters and see them through to fruition on the big screen what I didn't understand is that's not producing that's directing mm. so I was I was reaching for it but I didn't know what the term was what the term was and in what form that came and when I understood you know from a, from a from a sense of what I was feeling inside, it wasn't anything I could articulate. Like I knew what a producer did and I knew what a director did, but I just didn't believe I could ever be a director. So the way to do that was to produce instead. And then once I started directing, I was like, I'm never going to give this up. <laughs> do you have happened. a memory from like day one of that shoot? Mm -hmm. 
yeah, I have a memory. Well, I shot a pilot first and then I shot day one of the real shoot and I have a memory from both. So day one of the pilot, a senior crew member comes up to me right after I finished my first shot and he walks up to me and he says to me, Emma, why do women bleed? And I say, I don't actually know. And I don't know what you're talking about. And he says, because they're evil. And then he walks off. So that's my memory from that day. What? Mm-hmm. That's uh, the memory you're going to share? That's the memory I'm going to share. That is so goddamn ex- depressing. experience of a female director. Um, what do you think he was actually asking? I think he was just trying to discombobulate me and he did. Discombobulated me? Yeah. It's like 20 years later. Yeah, and he did. Um, for my memory... God, I don't um, know how you didn't strangle that person. I was just shocked and wobbly. Um, my, <laughs> You're much nicer than I am. I mean, my experience uh, that I remember from the first day was um, I have a fear of dogs. And, well, I don't anymore, but I had a fear of dogs at the time. I now have a dog. Um, and I adore them. And uh, so I didn't sleep the night before the first day of principal photography. And I get out of my car and the the driver is not able to drive me into unit base. There's something blocking. So he says, do you want to get out here? And I'm like, yeah, I'll just get out here. And as I get out, there's the biggest Alsatian dog with no lead and no nothing around its neck, you know, no collar around its neck just comes plodding along the street. And it's kind of blocking my entry into the unit base and I'm too scared to go into unit base, but I don't want my crew to know that I'm afraid to go into unit base because the one thing I don't want to do is show any fear on the first day of filming. So I'm kind of stuck Mm. outside and my production um, designer, he was the, um, he was an art director at the time, but he then became the production designer on Where Hands Touch, the film I've that's coming out tomorrow he comes up behind me and sees exactly what's happening like he didn't know I was afraid of dogs but he gets it exactly and he just puts his arm out for me and I kind of link arms with him and he walks me across the road and that's how I walk onto unit base the first day of filming um but I do also remember when we shot the pilot getting through that first first ever shot of anything I'd ever shot in my life and just be it was like eight o'clock in the morning I was just so ecstatic I was happy and I um I looked around and everybody had just stopped and they were all looking at me and I I say to my script supervisor like what are they looking at what what and she says they're waiting for you to tell them what to do next right and I'm like like (laughs) so this machine won't move unless I tell them so that yeah that's my memory from that the film that comes out tomorrow yeah. uh, opens with a James Baldwin quote. Mm-hmm. It's that there are days when you wonder what your role is in this country and what your future is in it. Mm. Um, what does that mean for you right now? Besides the fact that it's your birthday. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I know what my role is in my country and what my future is because I'm such a grown up now. And because I have chosen to define myself rather than to allow my society to define me. But that has been a journey. And certainly um, 10 years ago, five years ago even, definitely 15, 20 years ago, that quote was very, very relevant to me. Um, And certainly as a teenager growing up in the UK, it was very, very relevant to me. I didn't know what my place was and I didn't know what my country expected of me, if it expected anything at all, if I could even call it my country, despite the fact that there was no other country for me to call my own. Mm. And so 
for me, this was relevant both to Elena and Lutz, um, the Hitler youth boy that she meets in the story, who is going to discover that the national socialist um, regime that he must exist under is defining him other than he defines himself in the same way that it is defining Lena in a way other than she defines herself. And so without the extreme circumstances, I found myself having all those thoughts and feelings as a teenager and kind of up into my 20s, if not even early 30s, to be honest with you. Um, and I made an active choice that I couldn't exist in that way. I couldn't exist. N not putting my feet on soil that I believed I had a right to place my feet on in. And so, however, I can see and understand how there are kids, both in the UK and in America, who are going to be feeling that way today, the way that our world is positioning itself um, is disenfranchising people, individuals, and for younger people, that must be terribly, terribly confusing. And so that's why the quote is up there. Mm. Has making films made it easier to define yourself? Yes, definitely. I don't think I would have been able to without making movies. I think that there's so many layers to that. There's the, there's the kind of by yourself shit that you have to do when you're first writing the script. There's the resilience that you have to have when you're selling the script and have no concept of what is ever, you know, you've spent years putting something together and you don't even know if it's ever even going to be made. Right. Like the kind of faith you have to have. And then even if it goes wrong, the strength you have to have to get past that and move on is immense. Then there's the coming together with the brilliance of your crew to continue birthing this story and the relationships that you build with those people, the value you find in them and the value that they find in you within the context of these intimate relationships that may not last forever, but they come together for a really important moment in time in your life. And then there's the relationship that you have with your audience once your movie begins to have a conversation with them. And what happens when you sit back with an audience, you know, you sit in the back row of a packed movie theater and you watch your own film and you understand that you've made connections about yourself and the world and your characters that sometimes you didn't even know you were making at the time you made them. Mm. All of that, I think, gives you um, a sense of self, a greater sense of self that I'm hugely grateful for. The last thing I want to ask you before we leave, uh, Making movies is such a difficult, painful experience. Mm -hmm. Do you still enjoy the fight of it all? Oh, this is a bad time to ask that question. <laughs> <laughs> That's a perfect time to this ask This is it. a bad time to ask that question. Do I still enjoy the fight of it all? Um, I think it could be a tiny bit easier sometimes. Um, you know, I lose a lot of weight with every movie release. And uh, that's really painful. Like physically, that feels painful. Mm. Um, I I enjoy I enjoy the process of getting a movie made for sure. Um, I, I I I I wish it were a slightly more level playing field. Um, I know that it's difficult for all artists 
there's so many of us and we all have something important to say and we're all struggling for the relatively small amount of spaces that exist up out there for us to exhibit our our work so I get that but I do think there are times when it becomes almost unbearable would I give it up no I wouldn't give it up do I think sometimes give me a break industry yes (laughs) um and I'm I'm pretty sure I'm not alone in that um, but the rewards, the rewards, um, and, and by that I mean in terms of what you get back from your audience, it's, it's cliche, I know, but it's true. They're huge. They're huge. It's hugely fulfilling. And I couldn't live without that fulfillment. Mm. Like I need that fulfillment. And it's true. Part of that f- f- fulfillment probably comes from the struggle as well. Well, I hope in the grand scheme of putting this movie out that this hour has not been uh, too painful. It's not been painful at all. It's been a joy. Thank you so much. Happy birthday. Thank you. And, uh, Appreciate it. Thank you for coming on. Not at all. So long. Of course. Special thanks this week to Kara Pryor and Abby O'Donnell at Sunshine Sacks. If you'd like to see Where Hands Touch, Amma's latest film, you can do so in theaters now. It is out selectively, sporadically across the country, and uh, if you have an opportunity to go watch it, please do. In these early stages when a movie is released, the more you folks go in certain cities, the more it will open up in different cities around the U.S. If you'd like to find out more about AMA, you can do so in our show notes at www.talkeasypod.com. Also there, you'll find episodes with directors like Chloe Zhao, Rob Reiner, Julie Dash, Koganada, Sean Baker, and many, many more. You can find us on Twitter at talkeasypod.com. Um, I am lightly stepping into the Instagram world. My tag is at Sam Fricoso. It is a terrifying time. And if anyone knows me at all or knows this show at all, uh, you can imagine this is a, uh, a deathly proposition for me to even consider doing this. But I'm giving it a go. I'm trying my best to fit in to the year 2018 uh, to make success, honestly. As always, this show is executive produced by David Chen, graphics by Ian Jones, illustrations by Krishna Shenoy. Our associate producer is Elliot Weintraub, and the show is produced by Dylan Peck. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy, and uh, I'll see you next Sunday with Judy Greer. Have a good week, everyone. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress.
This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry and me. I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Fuma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.